0: Hey, are you glad to have Matt back on the platform with us? It's good to have you back, brother. And um, we have missed you, and you're going to report to us out here soon about the trip to Africa. But um, listen, at the name of Jesus and at the movie um, about Jesus' life, 252 brand-new believers are in the kingdom right now because of their ministry. Way to go, man. He just left me hanging. Did you see that? He just left me hanging right there. Go ahead and have a seat, and let's jump in, okay? Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John, because we're going to continue in our series entitled, Will the Real Christians Please Stand Up? And today's message, I know you've all slept, okay, uh, for a couple of weeks on this, but today's message is going to take us all the way back and connect back two weeks ago in a continuation of our sermons called Sin and Salvation. We're continuing in the same thought pattern on this. And um, what John is doing is he's giving us some identifying marks that are embedded into each person who is a legitimate child of God. And those marks are what prove that we are legitimate children of God. And what he's doing is he's shining a magnifying glass onto those things, things like, um, loving deeply, a, le- a legitimate child of God will love deeply. We're gonna actually spend the next couple of weeks on this one. And a legitimate child, Christ follower, will obey faithfully and will live authentically and will know Jesus completely. And the result of all of this is that we will believe about our salvation and about eternal life confidently. And so John's holding up this magnifying glass on these identifiers of how legitimate children of God live, and hear me now, live in a dangerous, angry, divisive, and quite frankly, a hostile world that is against you and me as legitimate children of God. So the last time we were together on this a couple of weeks ago in 1 John, we worked on one main point, and that is this, a legitimate child of God continues in righteousness, that's what we do once we are saved, as we continue in righteousness. You don't continue in righteousness if you are not a believer. But we continue in righteousness because of three things, because of our gratitude for his love. And again, this is in review, so I'm flying through it, okay? But 1 John 3, 3 said this, everyone who has this hope in him, and the hope that we're talking about is the great love of the Father. If you have this love of the Father and the hope of his love, we purify ourselves just as He is pure. And we talked about the fact that if we're truly born again and you and I will do for Jesus and give up everything for Jesus because of the love of the Father that has been stowed upon us, right? Okay, and when we truly understand and embrace that because of that love we get the righteousness of Christ, well then, no way would we continue in sin, right? Right? There's no way you would do that. If you fully understand what you have been saved from, we continue in Christ's righteousness. Here's another reason. Because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. And we learn that this is called imputation, the glorious work of imputation. I'm gonna take you back to this. Remember this graphic that we used? Here's what imputation means. Our sins were credited to Christ. Okay, so the sins of all of us were on him on the cross. He took our sins, and in replacement... When we accept Christ as our savior, we receive and we get his righteousness and it's his righteousness is credited to us, not our righteousness. In fact, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. There's that, transform, that, that transference of our sin onto him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so we get his righteousness, he gets our sin. Horrible deal for him. Wonderful deal for us. Amen? So after salvation, the person that he sees is not what you used to be and not what you were, but who you are now, not because of your righteousness, but because of what he has done. Christ imputed righteousness actually leads us to practical righteousness because if you truly are saved, you just simply can't help but continue in righteousness, one of the main reasons for that is because of the ministry of the seed, which is the third reason. 1 John 3, 9, no one born of him, we know of God, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I just want to stop and remind you that when Paul, John talks about a lot of in in absolutes, like you will not sin if you're in God, and if you're in God, you will no longer sin, and if you continue to sin, then you are no longer part of God, or you're not in God. And what we have been telling you and explaining to you, it's, we don't, it's not about whether we're going to sin or not. Nod your head. We're all going to continue to sin from time to time, but we're not living in and continuing a practice of sin like we did before Christ. You will not do that, and the reason why, one of the main reasons, because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, the seed that has been planted in each one of us. Of course, the seed is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In verse 10, he says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister, which is where we're going to pick it up today. Okay, now you're all caught up, up to date. Here we go. This is the part that I'm most nervous of in this message, what I'm about to do right now. Um, Because I'm struggling. And I am just dying to jump in to what's happening in the political realm of our world right now. And um, we actually talked about this in our elder meeting this week, and I've had several of you that are challenging me. Phil, you gotta be careful. You gotta be careful. I'm actually studying on this right now, like what, what should a pastor talk about and what should a pastor not talk about in this type of thing. Whenever things are going on in our world, How should a pastor address it? And there are like, the opinions out there are like belly buttons. You know, everyone's got one, right? And so like, where do you go from this? But I got to tell you that my level of disappointment and my level of anxiety has just been off the charts. And I want to scream. And the challenge to me is, Phil, you've got to be careful when you talk about these things because you, you're, you're starting to sound partisan. Well, I am partisan, but not in the way you think. It's not about what political party I'm on. I'm partisan to the kingdom of heaven, and I'm partisan to the truth in God's word and God's word is speaking more loudly now than it has ever spoken in my entire lifetime to the things that are happening in the world I mean anyone else but me disappointed in what's happening to our nation right now anyone else that don't answer that because then you'll be considered partisan somehow (laughs) anyone anyone but me disappointed in what you're seeing happening in the world right now in our world that we live in right now it's like out of control how are we supposed to live in the middle of that how am i supposed to pastor in the middle of all this how am i supposed to lead you can i even talk about these issues should i talk about these issues How can I take, I just want you to know that I'm not going, slow down, Phil, because this is where I get myself in trouble, where I just like launch, but I got to tell you, I'm thinking through this right now, and yes, I can can say this, I think it's safe to say this, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. Now listen, I'm not going to stop bringing to you what God's word has to say, and how to bring God's word, and how you're supposed to, you and I are supposed to live according to God's word. In the face of everything that's happening in our world, and I don't know how to do that because I, if, I don't know how to do that without drawing your attention to what's happening here, and then we talk about what God's Word says about how to live, and then helping you apply that to how to live in the world. I don't know. I would be mortified to think that in any given Sunday, you come to church here or any other church And you sit and you open God's word and you read it and go, ooh, ooh, ah, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good truth. Praise the Lord. And you close your Bible and you do not go live what you just learned. And I feel like it's my job. I know, Robin, she's giving me the sign. Just calm down. I believe it's my job to help you see how to live what a mistake it would be to be just hearers of the word and not doers of the word, but help you. How to, so we're going to work on this, how to live in the face of all this stuff. Now, I'm going to do something right now that I've never done and is not our normal right now, okay? Um, but I have invited some guests to join us today um, f- via video. And, um, you know, we've been hearing from First John for weeks now, and I thought it would be good to hear from second and third John. What I mean by that is um, I'm inviting John Piper and John MacArthur to our stage today. They were just involved, um, both of them, um, and I'm going to play, and it's a lengthy clip. I'm just going to tell you that ahead of time. It's not two minutes long, okay? It's a lengthy clip, so you're going to have to stay with it but they have—they talk about some things that I cannot explain to you. But somebody—somebody somebody showed this to me and gave this to me, and I thought I, the, our people have to see this because they're in a Q and A, and, and these are evangelical giants, you guys, and they participated a couple of weeks ago, so this is very fresh at a Puritan Pastors Conference in California. Now, John Piper, if you don't know who these two Johns are, okay? John Piper is 76-year-old pastor, and he pastored Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis for 33 years. John MacArthur is 83 years old and has been pastoring, is still pastoring Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. Hard place to serve for 53 years Now, these two men have been faithfully standing on the wall for God and his word their whole lives, uncompromising in their stand on God's word, and this was the question given to them, and I just have to share it with you. The question is this. As things get more and more hostile towards biblical Christianity, how can we as legitimate children of God begin to prepare for the coming persecution? I turn your attention to the screen to hear their answer.
1: As we look ahead in American culture, speaking about this same subject, it seems as if things are getting more and more hostile to biblical Christianity. The Puritans, of course, dealt with persecution. They dealt with hostility. For us as American Christians, how can we begin to prepare for the persecution that may very well be coming?
2: Well, I think we have to anticipate it. Um, whatever vestiges of Judeo-Christian ethics or whatever vestiges of Christianity were were still in the in the culture have have been evacuated. They're gone. I wouldn't even call this a postmodern culture. I would call it a pre-Christian culture. Pre. Pre Christian. This is like paganism 2.0. Okay, I see. It's as if Jesus never came. Yep. It's as if there never was a cross and a resurrection and a New Testament and a church and, and a Bible. Th- this, is, this is like Rome or like Molech worship or Baal worship. Th- this is blatant paganism. And um, it it is a kind of paganism that has levers. To control everything, with the control of the technology and social media, Um, what this, what the current zeitgeist in the world hates most is the truth. I'll give you an illustration. We won our case with the COVID lockdowns, with the county and the city. There were 12 different hearings that they set up for us. The judge in our case was a man married to a man.
1: So-called married.
2: Yeah. But he wasn't any ally of ours, as what I'm saying. So, and yet, he kept postponing the 12 times. He postponed the case because he says, until you guys settle the First Amendment issue, we can't go to the merits of this case. So he kept pushing it back to the Constitution. Finally, in frustration, because I was being given a jail sentence every week and a fine... And they were all mounting and accumulating. And um, finally, our attorney said, we want to depose the health department. We want to depose the top three officials in the LA Health Department. Our, our lawsuit was against the governor of the state, the county, and all of that. So we said, we're going to depose the health officials. In 24 hours, they dropped all charges, all fees, all fines, and paid all legal bills, almost to a million dollars because the one thing they couldn't cope with was the truth and that's the truth about COVID they could not let that out so they're trying to control everything to sustain the narrative they don't even want you to they don't want the, the, the governor just is in the process of signing in California a bill that would Basically say, so if you're a medical doctor in California and you go against the current narrative, you can lose your license. So they're trying to control everything. If they want to control those kinds of things, then how, welcome, how much welcome will they give to the truth of Scripture? Virtually nothing. So I, I think it's a short step from controlling narratives about political issues and social issues and structural issues and education and medicine and whatever and whatever to shutting down the spiritual and the biblical. So I think that's coming. Um, And that's, I mean, that's going to be fisher cut bait, right? That's going to be, I mean, you're going to have to pick sides. Then you're either going to be faithful or you're going to compromise. I saw this week that one church opened up after 900 days of being closed. That, that's that's rolling over in a pretty extreme way. but but I think we're going to the evangelical church, the fa- the faithful the biblical church is going to very soon become the target because we don't accept anything. Vanderbilt Hospital has a gender reassignment surgery, big part of their operation, you may have seen about it. Um, they They will brutalize, uh, they will maim young girls and young boys Um, and the head of the hospital as a video basically said anybody on the staff who doesn't agree with that get another job and then they hired a bunch of homosexual advocates to go with every child that comes in to talk to a physician they send an activist so that the doctor can't talk the child out of having their breasts cut off This is a hospital that's a historic medical school. Um, I just don't know, in a a culture like that, where Christianity becomes anything but the arch enemy of everything, of everything. And And I think, you know, we've had a couple of hundred years in America when it's been different than most of history and most of the world. That's right. But, but we're there. Yeah. This is a pagan country. and and they don't want to be confronted with biblical truth, and there's going to be some price to pay. i'm I'm confident of that. We have to be ready for that, and we have to be faithful. And then we have the joy of watching the hand of God and Providence do what it's going to do. And the end has already been written, and um, the Lord will triumph. Yeah. This, this country is now ruled by fear. And when people are afraid, they want somebody to protect them and, and help them. The, the primary fear from all that I can see is physical, physical death, physical health, safety, physical well-being. And now you've got the medical profession turned on its head where they're, they want to kill your baby in your womb or they want to act like Frankenstein on your 13-year-old or they they want to withhold medication when you go to the hospital because big pharma controls them so when you when you're living in a materialistic environment like this where everything comes down to protecting your physical well-being and television is like a thousand commercials in a row for medication but the whole medical World is, is now under the control of people who want to do evil and, and have no compunctions about killing. And if you think that's odd, remember, I saw the latest statistics that 71 million people were killed through World War II. In what world do you kill 71 million people? And they were largely killed, with the exception of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the A-bombs, they were largely killed by bombs that could kill hundreds, but mostly by guns that killed one at a time. So this is an evil world, and it has a massive capacity to kill and maim because its father is, is, a, is a killer and a liar. So I think cultural protections have been pulled away. We, we, we're, we're now... We're now where the early church was. I said, you know, Governor Newsom is, is Herod. He wants, he wants to make sure he goes through this state and kills all the little ones. And, and he will be, be reelected here. And people can't make the connection that if he's willing to kill all the li- little ones in the womb and maim people? Do you think he cares about you? So this is, a, this, is a, this is like paganism 2.0 to me. So we have to expect to have the level of hostility that paganism gives when it dominates a culture and Christianity is, is the most severe threat that it faces. Jesus said it this way. He said, the world hates me because I tell them their deeds are evil. And if they hated me, they'll hate you. If you tell them, if you stop telling them how wonderful they are, if you, if you stop the sentimental slop that you hear from Joel Osteen and the prosperity preachers, and you tell them their deeds are evil, and they are in need of Jesus Christ and he alone who can save them from eternal hell, they'll hate you. And that hate is going to show up in the same kinds of hostility that is, has been characteristic of other periods of time in other places. So this is a, this is a, this is a really... I, I was saying the other day to somebody, this, uh, this is a hard time to be a post-millennialist. it's it's um th- this is not going that direction from what i can tell um but it's also a terribly hard time to be a pragmatist how do you win this world you 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 want the world to like you you want the world to come to your church you you, you want to turn your church into a rock concert and you you want to turn yourself into some kind of slick sort of Comedian, Ted talk guy Because you want everybody to like you And you want to win the world You want to reach the world You connect with this world This culture It'll drag you to the bottom They're not going to be content Just to take your music They're going to want to take your They're going to take everything So you're going to wind up with Having to affirm homosexuality Transgenderism Divorce, adultery, you name it, because that's their life. So pragmatism worked ostensibly, superficially, obviously not genuinely, but it, it's megachurches flourished in becoming as much like the world as they could. Um, th- this is a hard time to, to pull that off because... Because you almost have to undo everything. If you're going to keep that relationship alive, you can't tell the truth. But if you tell the truth, you can't keep. You can't sustain it. So, uh, but this is the time for the faithful to stand up, right? And I read the end of the book, and we win. Yeah. Um.
1: In answer to the question, how do you help people get ready for this? My my answer would be, we should have started a long time ago, like from the very first sermon you came to your church. You teach your people that you are not first Americans, you are first Christians, and you're aliens and you're exiles on planet Earth, and this world owes you nothing, and you may expect suffering. And that should be preached when things are going as well as they can possibly mm-hmm. go because it's built into the nature. So in a sense, I'm a little uncomfortable with painting the narrative of the present moment as so extraordinary that that's the reason we need to be ready. And I don't know whether you intended that, but I, I would want from the get-go for 50 years, you help people see Life is hard. You're going to suffer. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. This is just plain biblical teaching. It's not peculiar to America. All over the world, people are suffering. And that would be true if America were heaven and on earth. So I want to prepare martyrs. I want people to go to the hardest places of the world. So my answer to how you preach is that you, you preach the sovereignty of God you preach the fact that suffering is to be expected, you preach the flip side of prosperity theology. The problem with prosperity theology is that it lacks a doctrine of suffering. And so pastors, you want to build into your people capacities to suffer, and not by be a, a, a child born who can't talk ever, and you'll be caring for this child for the next 30 years or it might be persecution you don't know what it might be so I, I think the kind of preaching that the church needs is just first Peter mm-hmm. through and through yeah. you preach what the Bible says about suffering blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for the uh, Great is their reward in heaven. Rejoice in that day and be glad. So so the, the, um, I, know, I know that you believe this, but that what you just did for the last 10 minutes there, I think can have an effect of making people angry and sowing seeds of, mm. how, how do you turn that? So I'll, I'll stop with the question. How do you turn that back to Christian hedonism? Because the last thing we sure. want is for people to walk out of church on Sunday seething with anger at their culture. That's the dominant emotion that they have. I want them thrilled with the sovereignty of God, thrilled that they're saved, thrilled that they have meaning in life rooted in the gospel, thrilled that no matter what happens in this world, they're gonna be able to walk in the truth and joy. And and so there's a concern in, in my heart that the way to get ready for suffering is to namely narrate how bad things are, which is what you just did. And I know that if you were preaching right there on Sunday, you'd have a text open in front of you and you would be leading people into and around and up
2: to God. My point in saying that is that the times have changed. I mean, it's different for us in America now than it was in terms of the tolerance of Christianity. That's all I'm saying. But the way I've always approached suffering, and you can't get away from it if you're expositing the Scripture all the time, is to go back to James 1, count it all joy when you fall into various trials because they have a perfecting work. Or take the words of Peter, after you've suffered a while, the Lord make you perfect God's greatest work is done in our suffering. And that's that's in the fabric of, of all of the teaching of the New Testament. Um, so on the one hand, I'm assessing, I think what you said is so important. I'm simply saying it's different today. And there are things that the church has gotten away with that you're not going to be able to get away with anymore and still be faithful because there's such hostility toward the truth. But at the same time, you not only prepare to suffer, but you prepare to see God do his best work in the suffering. Um, and I think the longer we live, John, we, we would look back and see that the, the times when we suffered the most, we drew most near to him.
1: Right. I doubt about it.
0: So did they overstate it? You sure? What What did he say? Christianity is becoming the arch enemy of everything. John MacArthur. John Piper. It would be a mistake, Phil, for you to charge the congregation up in anger. And have them go out every week seething in, with anger and enraged against the world that is out there becoming the arch enemy of everything we believe in, everything that we are. I want you to know I'm growing in this because I have an angry spot in here. I'm angry because I read, and I am, I'm just telling you. And I, and I know that there, see, anger is an emotion. We've already talked about this in the past. Anger is an emotion that God gives us. And to be angry is not to sin, but it, you can certainly sin in your anger, especially if it turns to bitterness and hatred. But I'm mad because I just read about, and I'm calling it the Montana massacre. I don't know if you're keeping up with things in the world. Montana? 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 Seriously, Montana? I think Montana is like one of the most um, uh, solid places in the world to live. In fact, I think if things get really bad, I might move to Montana. I th- my, in my heart and my spirit, I think Montana is one of the most conservative places that you can go. But Montana voters during this midterm election thing two weeks ago voted rejected what's called the Born Alive Infant Protection Act that would have required medical professionals to perform life-saving medical care on infants who survived an abortion. The pro-life measure would not have prevented Montana residents from receiving abortions, but would have required medical care be provided to infants born alive as a result of the natural or induced labor failed abortion or a cesarean section. The measure failed by 20,000 votes. A healthcare provider performing an abortion shall take all medical, appropriate, and reasonable steps to preserve the life and health of a born-alive infant who is viable. Makes sense, right? Is this some kind of crazy pro-life thing? Is this some kind of crazy off-the-wall, right-wing Christian thing that we've got going on here? It's called common sense and common decency and common morality for our brothers in this world that we live in. And so it's not enough to just say that abortion is legal in Montana, but now you you can't even pass a measure that makes it illegal for you to let a baby who survives the attempt of murder on its life and survives and actually is living on a table to just lay there and die because that was what the mother wants. Wow. I'm telling you I am, so, I am so upset over this. I wanna to go to Montana right now and do something about it. I'm gonna go and shout something out there. I wanna go make something happen. But I have to be careful. Because what happens inside of me when this kind of stuff happens is what might be righteous indignation has the potential of turning into rank bitterness in my heart towards what's happening in the world and what people are actually doing and allowing in our world, which will turn to hatred, which will turn to murder. I want you to see that in the time that we have left. And literally, I have 10 minutes So just relax, because we're coming back next week. And we're going to keep on rolling on this thing, okay? Because we're learning together how to respond in the middle of this world that we're living in. This, this craziness. Look at first John 3:11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should go out in our rage, in our anger, and go do something about it. This is what we have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And the next four verses, he spends detailing this big idea out right now that I have in your notes. A legitimate child of God does not hate. Why? Why, you guys? because we're legitimate children of God, and legitimate children of God are lovers. This is what we have heard from the beginning. From the very first teaching to the very first Christians, Jesus said a new commandment I give to you, love one another. Oh, and by the way, love your neighbor. Not haters, never haters. Not if you're in Christ, not ever, not anyone and not for any reason and i'm just going to put this caveat in here at least not for long because we have the temptation to be anxious but we're told don't ever be anxious right we have we have the temptation to be angry and to actually we have the, do you have the propensity to hate i do would there be reasons that this world could give you to hate? Absolutely. But we're told we're different now. We don't hate because we're Christians. Can I just, and we don't hate. We continue in righteousness, and the way that we do that is by having the Holy Spirit inside of us. The only reason that we are different from anyone else in the world out there in our hating is because we're in Christ. Christ. And because we experience and we know the love of Christ, it doesn't mean that you're not tempted to hate. It doesn't mean that you might not jump into the hatred bin for a little while also. But when we do, something different is happening in us because we're legitimate children of God. It is that we have the Holy Spirit of God who says, Phil, stop it. That's not for you anymore. Can you go to Galatians chapter five with me? Come on, let's go to Galatians chapter five and see this transforming work of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. Remember, we're talking about not perfection here. We're talking about progressive sanctification. We're talking about the process by which we are putting off all the old of our past and putting on all the new that is given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. This is the process we're all in. And we're all there at different stages of this whole thing. And we're never gonna get all the way to the end and be perfect in Jesus Christ until we die and we get glorified bodies. Just deal with that. Just accept that, okay, that you're going to fail, but we're always working towards continuing in that righteousness. And this is the work in Galatians chapter five that the Holy Spirit is doing. Let's read it. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. I'm starting in verse 16. Galatians chapter five, verse 16. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. There's where it comes from then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit is giving us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. Anybody want to shout hallelujah at that point? There is a transforming power at work inside of each one of us called the Holy Spirit, the seed that is planted in us in order to get us to stop craving and to put down those cravings of the old man and put on the cravings of Christ and the cravings of righteousness. And the Spirit is constantly working on us in order to get us there. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. And when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, idolatry, sorcery, here it is, hatred, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what he means by that is if you are continuing in this and you're not continuing in righteousness, if you are constantly living on the old side of your nature instead of the new side of Jesus Christ, then you're not in Christ and you don't have this Holy Spirit because His Holy Spirit will be working the righteousness in you to get you to stop doing those things. And when you fall back into those things and you go back because you're tempted to go into them and you fall, The Spirit's right there to say, knock it off, confess your sin, get back on the horse of righteousness, and ride, baby, ride. That's what's happening in all of us. But I need you to hear me that the sinful nature craves these things, but you're different now. The pull is still there, but you and I don't go and live there anymore because we're different, because we have the Holy Spirit of God. Look at verse 22. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. guess what there's no law against those things in other words there's no limit there aren't any even guidelines there's no law on these kinds of things in other words have as much as you want fill yourself up with these things as much as you want live in these and absorb your life into these things Be extravagant in these things as much as you want. There's no law at all on these things. This is what the child of God looks like. This is what we need to be growing in, not in hatred towards the things of the world, not in frustration and anxiety, certainly not fear for what is happening, but love. Love that covers all of this. Verse 12 of 1 John 3, 1 John 11 says, um, Love, right? Love one another. This is the message. But then he goes right into this interesting discussion. Don't be like Cain. Cain is the first child of Adam and Eve and who belonged to the evil one. And how do we know that he belonged to the evil one? Because he's a murderer. That's how we know. And he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because, of his, act, because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do you see that? Can you see that's what's happening? Why did Cain murder Abel? Because he was in sin, but his brother was continuing in righteousness. You want to hear the story? Let's go there. You can find it in Genesis chapter 4. Take your Bibles, jump to Genesis chapter 4. And for the tech team, while you're turning there, I'm fixing to shut this baby down in just like two minutes. So just get ready. I don't know where I'm going to jump to on the, on the notes. Listen to this story, Genesis 4, verse 2. So when Cain and Abel grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. And when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock, The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but here's what was known, okay? Cain knew. God made it clear what was required. And Cain knew that his offering, though it was an offering, of the best part of his land that he was producing, his vegetables, whatever it was that he was bringing, was not what God required for a sacrifice, And so the Lord accepted Abel's gift because he was being obedient. He was in righteousness. That's what John is telling us. And Cain was not. Cain was disobeying. And the Lord accepts Abel's gift, but he does not accept Cain's gift. And what happened at that point? This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out in the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. In this story, this is what we see. Murder grew out of hatred. Hatred grew out of anger, and anger was birthed out of jealousy. Do you see it? I want to be you. I want what you have, and I'm willing to sin. In this case, I'm willing to kill in order to get it, and if I can't have it, then you can't have it either. I mean, this is like an elementary schoolyard thing, right? And this kind of thing never happens in the adult world. Right? Well, the same message for Cain is the same message for us. Watch out. Sin is crouching at the door. Look at this. I found this on my study. Anger is embryonic hatred. And hatred is embryonic Murder, and in God's mind, murder and hatred are one in the same. Jesus said this in his great sermon on the mount. He said, if you hold anger in your heart, you've heard it said, he said, do not murder. But I say, if you hold anger and hatred in your heart towards your brother, you are a murderer. John echoes that in the 15th verse of 1 John 3. Anyone who hates a brother is a murderer. The only outward difference between murder and hatred is the act itself. Some have actually said it this way If you harbor hatred in your heart, the only thing keeping you from the act itself of murder is the opportunity. It might even be the boundaries and the consequences that are keeping you from acting on that hatred, but if you could, you would. I know this. And the reason is because you have hatred in your heart. And what John wants us to know, my friends, is this. The difference between a child of God and a child of the devil will be found in what you do with hatred. A true mark of a legitimate Christian is that there is no hate in him. And this truth all by itself is why true believers shine so brightly today because our world is so full of hate. We live in an ocean of hatred. It's all around us. It's actually it just just take a look. It's spewing out of every orifice the world has. It's just spewing out everywhere. Every day you see it. It's walking down the streets where you live. I mean, are you guys like me? Do you see these things where people are like just going up behind people and just cold cocking them from behind and knocking old ladies out and knocking old men down and doing. What drives that kind of stuff? But the rank, wicked, evil things that are in people's hearts that's being taught and modeled to our children in the schools and in our universities and has totally engulfed our government and our politics. And in the middle of all that hatred, in the middle of all this stuff that's going on in our world and this division and hatred stands the Christian. Here we stand. In the middle of it all, called to love in the face of this hate. Called to love a world Not just filled with hatred, but whose hatred is turned on and has its gaze on all of us, true, legitimate children of God. I don't know how to land this plane right now. Um, But I'm going to land it with this. Um, John says... In, how do you respond to this? If you're gonna ask John, well, how do we respond to this hatred, John? How do we, how do we deal with all this? He would say this in verse 13, don't be surprised. My brothers and sisters, don't be surprised if the world hates you because like Cain against Abel, their hearts that, are, that result in actions towards us are only evil continually and yours aren't. Cain hated Abel because his ways were righteous. The world will hate you because you, a child of God, are continuing in righteousness. And so they'll hate you for that. And you can't stop it. So don't be surprised by it. This is what they do because it is what they are. And so Phil, stop saying to the TV, what are you guys doing? What is wrong with you? Stop turning and getting Robin involved. And stop saying to Robin, Robin, can you believe it? Listen to this. And like, I don't want to hear any more about it, Phil. You have to, Robin. You have to. Stop being so surprised that these things are happening in the world, my friends. This is what they are. This is what they do. And it's getting worse and worse. And the Bible tells us it's going to. You know, every time I say that, you guys look at me like, oh, here he goes again. I wish I had a message of this. Everything's coming up roses tomorrow. (laughs) Jesus just washed the earth with snow. And little poppies are gonna pop up tomorrow. And everything's going to be great. I wish I had a message of that for you. I don't. The message is don't be surprised. The world hates you. That's what they do to people who continue in righteousness. You're going to drop us there, Phil? Yes, I am. <laughs> next week, and the next actually the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore. We're going to dive in and explore what it means to live a life of love, how to be filled up with that how to live it out and actually spill it out onto everyone out in the world that's trying to kill us because that's what hatred turns into. And so I got some really good news coming. I got some really great things we're gonna talk about and we're going to go out equipped on living a life for the world, for the world, those who hate us and go out there and love them to death. Love them to Jesus. That's what it's all about. You up for it?